You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy. This is Lecture 4, entitled The History of Hypnotism, given in Berlin on June 6, 1904. Many people believe that hypnotism is something modern, that science has been concerned with it for 50 years at most. Well, let me cite evidence from the 17th century. This is from a book that is little read today. It is by the Jesuit father Athanasius Kircher. Kircher, probably. It was first published in 1646. Let me give you the words of this Jesuit father in somewhat modern language. They may be found in a book that Goethe treated in detail in his history of the theory of color, because Kircher plays quite an important role also in the history of the theory of color. In his book, Kircher mentions something he calls actinovalismus. I'll spell that. Actinovalismus. A-C-T-I-N-O-V-O-L-I-S-M-U-S. Actinovalismus. It means something like brilliant imagination. Kircher says, quote, This great force of imagination appears even among animals. Chickens, for example, as has been shown, possess a power of imagination so strong that from the mere sight of a piece of string they become motionless, seized with a peculiar stupefaction. The truth of this assertion is shown by the following remarkable experiment connected with the chicken's power of imagination. Lay a chicken whose feet are tied together anywhere on the ground. At first it will struggle to get the fetters off by flapping the wings and so on. Finally it will give up the vain efforts. Stroke the chicken with your hand, permit it to move after loosening the fetters, and you will find that the chicken will by no means fly away, even though you incite it to do so. The explanation is based on nothing but the lively power of imagination of the creature, which supposes the stroking to be its fetters. I have often made this experiment. About the same time, another German author, Kaspar Schott, reported something regarding this condition in animals in a book called titled Pleasurable Entertainment of the Human Power of Imagination. Schott, who was a friend of Athanasius Kircher, tells us that he gathered the fundamental facts for his book from numerous experiments by a French medical writer. What he speaks of in his book is nothing but what we call animal hypnotism. You know that by hypnotism we mean a sleep-like condition into which a person may be brought by means of various methods. In this sleep-like condition, people show various characteristics that they do not show in waking consciousness or ordinary sleep. For instance, you can prick individuals in hypnotic sleep with a needle and they don't feel it. At a certain stage of the process, you can have the subject stretch out The limbs become so rigid and fixed 
that you can then lay the person across two chairs, supported merely by the head and feet, then the heaviest person in the room can stand on this rigid body. Those who have seen the experiments of the really extraordinary hypnotist Hansen in the 1880s know that after putting people into hypnotic sleep, Hansen, a truly heavy man, laid them with quite slight support on two chairs and then stood on them. The hypnotized bodies behaved almost like boards. Further, whoever has put the person into such a condition can give the subject so-called suggestive commands. You can say to a person you have put into such a state, quote, you will now stand up, go to the middle of the room, and remain there standing as if spellbound. You will not go farther. You will not be able to move, close quote. The person will carry out the order and then remain standing as if spellbound. That is just a beginning. You can say to the person, quote, here in this room there is not a single person except you and me, close quote. He or she will say to you, even though the room is filled with people, quote, there is no one here, the room is quite empty, close quote. or you say, quote, there is no light here, close quote, in which case the subject sees none. These are negative hallucinations. You can also suggest hallucinations of another sort. You can say as you put a potato into his, his or her hand, quote, that is a pear, take it and eat it, close quote. and you can see that the subject thinks it is a pear. In a similar way, you can give the subject water to drink and he or she will think it is champagne. If to create a vision hallucination, you say, for example, quote, you will see a red circle on the white wall, close quote, the subject will see a red circle on a white wall. If after this hallucination, you show the red circle through a prism, it becomes clear that the hallucination breaks exactly according to the prism's laws of refraction. That is, exactly as the phenomenon would if it were not an hallucination. Visual hallucinations follow the laws of refraction. They follow other laws too, optical laws, but it would lead us too far afield to discuss these in detail. It is especially important to know that if we give a hypnotized person a command that is not to be carried out immediately, but only later, that too can happen. It is called post-hypnotic suggestion, and it can lead to strange things. I can suggest to a hypnotized person that a certain action be performed in three times ten days, but a great number of actions will have to be performed before that time. To survey the preliminary conditions necessary for this is perhaps possible only to the occultist, but have no fear about it, the person will nevertheless punctually carry out the given command in three times ten days. These are phenomena that are denied by very few at the present time. Even scientists who have occupied themselves with these questions accept them. It is scarcely possible for anyone who has studied these things to deny the assertions I have made. What I am about to say is, of course, denied by many. But during the preceding decades we have seen such a large number of things conceded by physiologists and psychologists that we cannot know how much will still be added to the concessions already made. Now, I said that records of such abnormal states of consciousness are to be found even in the 17th century. I might also mention, in regard to other phenomena, that a knowledge 
of what we call the hypnotic state has existed among the occultists and occult researchers of all times. Of course, I cannot prove that the ancient Egyptians, and particularly the priest-sages of ancient India, had exact knowledge of only what I have mentioned here as the phenomena of hypnotism. These phenomena are very elementary. The sages knew much more. Indeed, the fact that they knew more prevented them from giving their wisdom to the masses. We shall see why. There is one odd fact, however. Kircher is said to have obtained his knowledge of these things indirectly from India. During the centuries following the 17th century, when Kircher was supposed to have received his knowledge indirectly from India, outer science was not especially favorable to this sort of thing. This science, nevertheless, made great progress, especially in the field of physics and astronomy. This had great significance for human thinking. It accustomed people to seeking the truth, the actually knowable, only in the obvious reality and thereby people form the habit of not admitting what cannot be seen with eyes, grasped with hands, and comprehended by the calculating intellect. Historically we are approaching the Enlightenment. This was the age when the average human condition became the fashion, the age when human beings wished to determine everything in the way they determined physical phenomena. Experiments connected with physical phenomena must succeed if the hypotheses are correctly made. And anyone can make these hypotheses. In the realm of hypnosis, however, something else is necessary. Here the direct influence of life upon life is essential. The direct influence of human beings upon each other and other beings. The manipulations made with the chicken in the experiment that Kircher related in the 17th century had to be performed by a human being. In fact, all the experiments I have spoken of also have to be carried out by one living person upon another living person or being. Now it might well be because human beings differ so much from one another that they have such varying qualities that are able to influence other living beings, especially other human beings, in quite different ways. And so it could also very well happen because a human being is necessary in order to produce the phenomena of hypnosis, that one person does not have the qualities necessary for hypnotizing anyone, while another possesses these qualities. We need not be surprised if this is the case. We all know that a reciprocal effect takes place when the persons concerned comparable to that between a magnet and iron filings. The iron filings remain quiet if you put a piece of wood among them, but if you put a magnet among them, these splinters arrange themselves in a certain manner. Now we must presume that human beings are so different from each other that one, like the magnet, can produce certain effects, and another, like the wood, can produce no effects. The purely intellectual explanation will never permit such a conception. The intellectual explanation takes for granted that one person is like another. The average standard is applied to people, and it is never conceded that someone may be an eminent scientist intellectually, 
and yet have no ability, no qualifications whatever, to produce a state of hypnosis. It might be the case that less depends upon the hypnotized and more upon the hypnotist, who takes the active part. Perhaps qualities may even be called forth artificially in one person that exert such a powerful mastery over another that the phenomena we have spoken of appear. Indeed, perhaps even much more significant phenomena appear. Intellectual explanations which do not differentiate between human beings will not admit this. However, those who occupied themselves with these things were convinced on this point even after the beginning of the Age of Enlightenment. Anyone who follows the course of history will therefore find with regard to hypnotism an entirely different understanding of science than we have today. Often it was merely oral traditions that were passed on from school to school. In all of this, nothing is ever said about the condition of the hypnotized persons, the condition of those who are to be hypnotized. That was not the important thing. On the other hand, methods are suggested that will qualify another person, the hypnotist, to call forth such inner powers that he or she may be able to exercise an influence upon the others. In the occult schools of former ages, quite precise methods were taught by which one person could gain such power over others. But all the schools also required that the person seeking such power should go through a certain development that makes demands upon the whole being. Mere intellectual learning is of no use here. Mere thinking and science cannot help. Only those who know and use occult methods, who attain a high stage of moral development, who undergo the most varied tests in intellectual, spiritual and moral relations, can rise above their fellows appropriately and become true priests of humanity. Such occult methods lead them to a stage of development at which it becomes impossible for them to use their power other than for the welfare of their fellows. And because such knowledge bestows the greatest power, because it comes about through the transformation of the whole person, it was therefore kept secret. Only when other approaches prepared the way did people acquire other opinions, other purposes, other intentions concerning these phenomena. Thus, for hundreds of years, the traditions of occult science formed the basis of the subject, and nothing mattered but the following. What demands must one to whom such power is given fulfill? What methods are necessary in order that a person may gain such an influence over his or her fellows? Thus the matter stood until the Enlightenment. Only at the beginning of that age could something be disclosed about these phenomena in popular scientific form, as Kircher did. Before that, no one who knew about the matter and the method would have dared speak about these in public. They, that would have occurred only through some indiscretion. Only when the saying, quote, knowledge is power, close quote, was no longer common knowledge, did it become possible to discuss this knowledge, which is about nothing other than 
dominion of spirit over spirit. It is therefore not surprising that official science, which in content and method, as we know, is a child of recent centuries, had no idea what to do with these phenomena. Scientists were especially perplexed when the phenomena appeared in a startling form at the end of the 18th century through Mesmer, who was both slandered and exalted to heaven. Mesmer brought the matter to an issue with the learned professions. The term mesmerism, of course, derives from his name. Mesmer was a rather peculiar personality, such as perhaps appeared in greater numbers in the 18th century than appears today. He was a personality who, as we shall see, necessarily had to be misjudged by many, but who was also in a position because of his fearlessness to bring this question to an issue. To an outsider it really looked like a desire for adventure, like charlatanry. In 1756, a treatise by Mesmer on, titled The Influence of the Planets on Human Life, appeared, which scientists of the present time must look upon as a very fantastic thing. Pryor, Darwin's biographer, confronted this question without prejudice. I choose Pryor as an example of how little the new science of the 19th century could do justice to what was written from entirely different hypotheses in the 18th century. I'm, I think his name is probably pronounced uh, aside Prayer, P-R-E-Y-E-R. I'm going to say Prayer. Prayer then took up the works of Mesmer with complete goodwill and could find nothing in them but empty words. Those who do not judge such things capriciously, but rather with expert knowledge of the subject, will understand this. They may indeed distrust those who believe they can defend Mesmer against prayer. If one wishes to judge justly, the preliminary conditions for such judgment lie much deeper than is commonly believed. Mesmer's first treatise will not, however, engage our attention, for it shows to observers with deeper insight nothing more than the fact that Mesmer was able to master the science of his time comprehensively and from a rather lofty standpoint. I wish to call special attention to this, so that it will not occur to anyone that Mesmer was a dilettante or anything of the sort. When he wrote his doctor's thesis, Mesmer was, in fact, undoubtedly an unobjectionable young scientist, and you can find that he wrote in numberless theses by people who became quite clever and excellent scholars of the 19th century, excuse me, 18th century and even of the early 19th century. In Vienna, in the last third of the 18th century then, this Mesmer appeared on the scene with his so-called, quote, magnetic cures, close quote. For these magnetic cures he had first made use of certain methods that were already in common use at the time. There was nothing deceptive about the method he used. By placing steel magnets on or near the affected parts of a sick body, alleged or actual alleviation or cure of pain was brought about. Mesmer used such magnets in his institution for a long time. But then he observed something quite extraordinary. Perhaps he did not even observe it at all at that time, 
Perhaps he already knew it and only wished to use a more customary method as a means of concealment. That is to say, he stopped using the magnets. He said that the force came solely from his own body. He claimed that as healing force it was simply carried over from his own body to the diseased body under consideration. Healing was therefore the result of a reciprocal action between a force that Mesmer developed in his own body and another force that was in the diseased body of the other person. He calls this force animal magnetism. I am telling the story only in rough outline. To give it a more detailed way, in a more detailed way, would demand too much time. Very soon we will not discuss the results of his cure. Mesmer had trouble in Vienna and had to leave the city. He went to Paris. At first he had quite extraordinary success there and was much sought after. However, professionals could not get over the fact that Mesmer earned 6,000 francs a month. In fact, this attitude was to be expected on the part of an aspiring science inclined to materialism. But of course it is something really distasteful from the point of view of the physician for anyone to earn so much. You know that in the 18th century, when the Enlightenment was at its height, the waves of materialism rolled high in France. People were willing to admit the validity of nothing that could not see with eyes, grasp with hands, or calculate with the intellect. And you will understand that from the side of official science, which was more or less under the influence of the materialistic tendency, people took offense at things they could not understand. Mesmer's healings therefore became a public scandal. It was said that the illnesses must be only imaginary, not actual, so that hysterical people were cured only in their imagination, or the sick imagined they were freed from pain. In any case, Mesmer's method was questioned. The consequence was that by the order of the king, two corporate bodies were requested to give expert opinion about mesmerism. I should like to read to you from the report so that you can see how the science of that time actually regarded these things. A woman who had been blindfolded was told that Mr. D. L. had been sent for and that he would magnetize her. Three authorized members of the commission were present, one to ask questions, one to take notes, and one to do the mesmerizing. The woman was not magnetized at first, but after three minutes she felt the influence, became rigid, rose from the chair, and stamped her feet. This was the crisis. This crisis was critical in Mesmer's cures. Success was attributed to it. An hysterical woman was brought to the door, and when she was told that the magnetizer was within, she began to shiver, to get cold. That was the crisis. The commission ascertained that something strange was under consideration, which it could not anticipate and it ascertained something concerning which it could scarcely have passed any judgment other than that Mesmer's whole procedure was fraud. Anyone who understood anything about it could have predicted to you that the probability was 95 in 100 that they would come to this conclusion, and that with their hypotheses they could arrive at no other solutions. Nevertheless, the Commission could have come to different conclusions, 
Is it then nothing at all that a woman outside the door, who merely grasps the thought concerning a person, comes into all the conditions related to us here about the woman in the room? First of all, we must ask, and the commissioners should also at that time have asked themselves fairly and honestly, could they, from their point of view, from the rationalistic standpoint, have expected such an effect of thought? Would they have had, with their materialistic means, any possibility of explaining the effect of thought upon bodily conditions? Even if we concede to the commission the right to condemn Mesmer, it can never be granted the right to drop the matter. The commission should have further investigated the matter for a quite unique scientific question was under consideration. I should like to call attention to another fact that is very interesting. A very large sum was offered to induce Mesmer to reveal his secret. It was also said that the sum was paid over over to him, that he kept the secret to himself and did not tell it to others. By many, that is considered fraud. But shortly afterward there appeared throughout France so-called hermetic societies, in which the same arts were practiced to some extent. It was not said that he divulged his secret. Nevertheless, there were those who used his methods. Anyone who knows something of these things knows that he communicated his secrets only to trustworthy persons. The fact that he did not publish his secrets in the newspapers reveals nothing at all. Connect that statement with the fact that those who actually know something about such things do not communicate them, since it is not a question of communicating, but of developing certain qualities that produce such effects. Now you will comprehend whence the societies came. In this case, the experiments are not at all the important factor. An unauthorized person should even be forbidden to perform the experiments. The only question of importance is the development of the hypnotist. Actually, the scientists of that time could hardly give any sort of explanation of these phenomena. Therefore, the phenomena were finally given the death penalty, both by the French Academy and by the entire scientific world. But they came up again and again. Even in Germany such phenomena were continually discussed. Special newspapers were established for that purpose. People who believed that such an influence could be exerted from person to person explained the facts by assuming that a fluid, a fine substance, passed over from the hypnotist to the persons hypnotized and that this exerted the influence. But even those who did not deny this influence were not able to rise above materialism. They said to themselves that matter is matter, whether it be coarse or fine. They could imagine what was spiritually effective only as something of a material nature. That these phenomena were interpreted in this way at that time is a consequence of the circumstance that the attempt to explain them was made in the materialistic age. I cannot now describe in detail the different decades following Mesmer. I only want to mention that the phenomena were never entirely forgotten. People appeared again and again who took them seriously. There have even been university professors 
who have described them in detail and who already knew of various things that we class together, excuse me, that we class today under the concept hypnotic phenomena. They knew of what we call verbal suggestion. They upheld as true much more than present-day science is willing to concede. One scientist asserted that he could read a book quite well with closed eyes, that he could read with the pit of his stomach, and in such a condition could read the words by merely touching the page of a book. It was asserted by artificial somnambulism, excuse me, it was asserted that by artificial somnambulism a person was able to see distant events, that is, become clairvoyant. Thus the whole group of phenomena was brought under discussion again. It is strange that the scholars of the nineteenth century had to be forcibly reminded of these things. They were first brought to attention by itinerant hypnotists like Hansen, who traveled around in America during the 1840s, exhibiting phenomena before great public gatherings and getting paid for it. Such figures often produced quite tremendous results among their audiences and were called spellbinders. Justinus Kerner, in particular, called these people spellbinders because they produced soul effects by merely staring merely gazing. This focus upon the phenomena has its dangers, however, both because dangers exist for the persons undergoing the experiments and because certain frauds can be perpetrated upon the public in the most unbelievable way. I want to cite one experiment that has often been made, which I know has caused people to be perplexed and deceived again and again in great public assemblies. The experiment consists in the following. A medium sits with blindfolded eyes. The showman concerned goes around in the audience and in the back of the hall says, quote, Whisper something in my ear or ask a question and we shall see whether the medium is able to know something about it or write for me on a scrap of paper a word or a sentence. Close quote. Either one or the other is done and after a very short time the medium, far removed from the showman, will speak the word that was whispered or written down. Nobody except the two people knows anything about it, and the showman concerned can produce the scrap of paper or ask the person in question whether the communication of the medium agrees. As a matter of fact, in many cases when I was present, nothing but the following happened. The man who walked around was a very clever ventriloquist. At the moment when the word was to be spoken, the medium moved his lips. The entire audience was watching the medium's lips, and the showman himself spoke the word or the sentence referred to. Thus in the 1840s and 1850s, hypnotism was again brought forcibly to the attention of scientists by itinerant spellbinders. Particularly, there was a certain man named Stone, who made a great sensation and gave rise to much comment. Before that, however, one scientist was brought to the point of closely studying these phenomena once more. From him in the 1840s, we have treatises of a scholarly sort about these phenomena. They allude chiefly to the fixation method, that is, staring at a bright object. Now this scientist immediately called attention to the fact 
that with all these phenomena it could not be a question of a particular, a specific influence passing from the hypnotist to the persons hypnotized. And this very experiment of fixation was for him so determinative because he wished to show that in these phenomena the chief matter of concern is an abnormal condition of the person undergoing the experiments. He wished to show that no reciprocal action occurs, but that everything that happens is to be conceived as only a physiological phenomenon produced by a mere brain process. He was concerned to show that mesmerism, which depends upon the mesmerist himself having special qualities, is an absurdity. This really set the fashion, in which, from this time on, these questions were treated by official science during the entire second half of the nineteenth century. With only a few exceptions, the problem was taken up as if it could be treated as an ordinary experiment in natural science, that is, as if it were something that has significance only in so far as it can be reproduced, like any other experiment in natural science. The demand was now made of this experiment also, but the study was undertaken in a very unfavorable time. To indicate to you how unfavorable the time of the 1850s and 1860s was, I wish to cite something further, which is most significant for one who examines the progress of evolution of the 19th century, but which is, as a rule, overlooked by official science. Long before Stone, long before the time of academic learning, a man who had been a Catholic priest appeared in Paris. He had gone to India, to the Brahmins, and now employed hypnotism and suggestion in Paris, that is, person-to-person suggestion for healing according to the methods he had learned in India. This man, whose name was Faria, explained all the phenomena in an essentially different way. He said that only one thing mattered. This was the hypnotist's ability to reduce the mass of ideas of the person who was to be hypnotized to a condition of concentration or, in quotes, collectedness. Once this collectedness or concentration was attained, that is, once all the ideas within a person were concentrated upon a definite point, the desired condition would appear, and then other phenomena would also appear, even a much more complex phenomena that Faria exhibited. There you have, for once, an exposition and solution in accordance with the facts by someone who actually understood the matter. But he was not understood. He was simply disregarded. And that also is explicable. I have said that the Jesuit priest Kircher, who first discussed these matters, and who also procured his wisdom from India, indicated the solution in the title of his book. Of this, however, scientists understood little, so that the well-informed prayer could say as late as 1877, Quote, if the Church traces these phenomena back to imagination, that only shows how much imagination the Church has. Close quote. Prayer expressed his opinions strikingly about the Catholic priest who became a Brahmin. It was always the case, however, that hypnotism 
was used for cures and for easing pain in operations. Those connected with faria succeeded through spiritual influence in eliminating the sensation of pain in the person being operated upon. In 1847, chloroform was discovered, a remedy that materialistic researchers could justifiably believe in and say was capable of preventing pain during operations. With chloroform, other means of easing pain were lost for a long time. Only isolated researchers who actually thought occupied themselves with these phenomena during the succeeding years. At the same time, anyone who observes accurately will discover that physicians are very well acquainted with the methods belonging to this field and concede that behind the phenomena is something they do not understand. Those who have more insight warn against meddling with these phenomena at all, with this field so subject to deception that even great scientists can be fooled. Certain scientists, for whom we must otherwise have the greatest respect, had this point of view. I will mention only the Viennese researcher Benedict, who has who as early as the 1870s repeatedly alluded to these phenomena. He is the same scientist who advanced the idea of so-called moral frenzy, which ordinarily is only little understood. It is not necessary to agree with his theory, nor with what he says about hypnotism and magnetism. As a young man, he was already engaged more or less with mesmerism and believed there was some truth in it but he never occupied himself with it in the same way as Liebold and Bernheim, let us say, of the Nancy school. Benedict opposed this school vigorously and emphasized that even Charcot had given warnings concerning attempts to interpret these phenomena. You will never be able to find a plausible reason for Benedict's opposition to the whole theory of hypnosis. Nevertheless, his instinctive utterances take a remarkably correct direction. He says repeatedly that anyone who experiments in this field must clearly understand that those with whom he makes such experiments are just as able to deceive him, perhaps without being conscious of it, as they are able to be the means of bringing him some sort of truth. On the other hand, he also says that no solution at all is to be reached according to the methods by which science wishes to grasp these things. Now we see, especially after an itinerant hypnotist like Hansen has again performed the most terrifying experiments before people, which were repeated successfully in part by scientists in the laboratory, how magazines seized upon the matter, how large volumes were written that were widely retailed by journalists, and how these things gradually became the questions of the day and popular articles were written about them, so that everyone might have instructions on these matters in their vest pockets. It was especially the scientists of the Nancy School, Liebo and Bernheim, who interpreted these phenomena scientifically. A characteristic quality had to be ascribed to them that would bring them into correspondence with other scientific phenomena and give them equal significance. So we see that the outer aspect, 
that which cannot be denied by materialists, was to be the determining factor for bringing about a state of hypnosis. Bernheim went so far that he excluded all methods and allowed only verbal suggestion. The word that I speak to the person in question acts in such a way that he or she comes into this state. Hypnotism is itself a result of suggestion. When I say, quote, you are going to sleep, close quote, or, quote, your eyelids are closing, close quote, and so on, the corresponding mental image is called forth, and this produces the result. By this means, then, materialism had happily disposed of the phenomena of hypnosis. Thus, a fact that is known by everyone who knows anything of these things passed into the background, namely that hypnosis depends upon the influence of one person upon another, that a person either has a natural talent for it or cultivates it by special methods and thus develops into a powerful personality fraught with significance for his fellows. And this fact that personal influence was exercised had been entirely overlooked. The point of view of the average intelligence was allowed to prevail, according to which everyone is equal, a point of view that does not admit the possibility of human development to a certain high moral and intellectual completeness of training. In this way, what hypnotists, excuse me, in this way what hypnosis depends upon was buried. All the modern literature on hypnotism is written from this point of view. This is particularly true of the philosopher Wundt, who has no idea what to do with this phenomenon, explaining it by saying a certain part of the brain becomes inactive. We have been led into a sort of blind alley. We shall not be able to find in the contemporary literature on this subject anything but a more or less large collection of simple elementary facts. The explanation of hypnotism as the influence of one person upon another reveals more or less ineffectual, rather materialistic attempts at a solution. But we shall come to see, above all, that official science was not equal to these facts. Nothing is more unjustified than for the medical fraternity today to pretend that they understand these phenomena, while they advance the claim that these data should be solely the field of medicine, the prerogative of medicine. To those who have real insight, it is clear that from their present point of view, physicians do not know what to do with these data and most important of all, that those people are right who point to the danger in such things. Not without reason have people like Moritz Benedict warned against a scientific pursuit of the phenomena of hypnotism in the customary sense. Not without reason have they said that even a Charcot has to pay attention, because these states which he as objective observer produces can just as well attack him subjectively. Not without reason have they wished to protect science from such treatment of the problem as the Nancy School gave it, treatment that for those with real insight resulted in nothing except worthless attempts at records and explanations that actually proved nothing. With good reason Benedict has pointed to the fact that in all the literature of the Nancy School it is not possible to distinguish between what is superficial 
and what is positive performance, whether someone has surrendered to self-deception or has been deceived. That is the instinctive judgment of a man, that is, of this very Professor Benedict, who is, after all, highly esteemed by certain individuals of the present day, especially by some profound physicians. This judgment is significant because it instinctively presents to us the true state of the case. Instinctively, Benedict indicates what really matters. The first point is, and Benedict expresses this in clear words, that these things must not be jumbled together with others in order to experiment with them. He therefore investigates only those data that come to him without his seeking. When someone passes into natural hypnosis, undergoing no change through the hypnotist, then the phenomena can be investigated scientifically. As soon as we exert an influence of this kind upon our fellow, then we exert an influence from person to person, from the force of one person to that of another. At that moment we alter the condition of the other person, and then what matters is our own personality, what kind of person we are. This fact is known by those who are acquainted with higher methods that science as yet knows nothing of. If you are a base person, in a certain sense a person of inferior worth, and you exercise an influence upon your fellows by means of hypnosis, then you do them harm. If you wish to exercise such an influence in a suitable way, so that vast cosmic forces are not injuriously tinged by it, then you must be well versed in the mysteries of the higher spiritual life. That is possible only when you have developed your power to a higher level. It is not a question of an experiment being performed here and there. Such phenomena are the same as those being constantly produced in our environment. You cannot enter a room in which other persons are present without reciprocal action taking place, analogous to what occurs under other conditions in hypnotic phenomena. If such influences are to be consciously exerted, then one must first be worthy and capable of exercising them. For that reason, there will be healthy life in this field only when the ancient method is revived, and it is no longer required to study these phenomena according to science. This would require that a person who has awakened the inner power, that is, who has the capacity to be a hypnotist, must first develop quite definite higher forces. This was well known in earlier times. The nature of these phenomena was known. What was important was the preparation of people so that they might properly bring about such phenomena. Only when our medical education is again of an entirely different nature, when the whole of humanity is again led to a higher moral, spiritual and intellectual level, and when the human being has proved worthy, only then can a salutary development of this field be spoken of. For this reason, nothing is to be hoped for from the academic treatment of hypnotism and suggestion. There they are conceived in an entirely wrong way. They must first be considered again in the right way. If that comes to pass, then we shall see 
that these phenomena are really more widespread than is ordinarily supposed. We shall then understand much in our environment. We shall then know, also, that these phenomena cannot be popularized at all beyond certain bounds. Because beyond these bounds they belong to the evolution of the inner human being. The highest power is not gained by vivisection of the spirit, but by the development of powers lying deep within us. The higher development of moral and spiritual powers is what will again make us worthy to speak in clear, plain words about these subjects. Then we shall also again understand our forefathers, who never thought of displaying these things in their deepest significance before the profane world. Nothing else was meant when it was said, quote, No one who is guilty of a fault may lift the veil of Isis. Close quote. By this it was meant that one may know the highest truths only if one first makes oneself worthy of them. That throws a new light on the saying, Knowledge is power and gives it a new, new significance. Yes, indeed, knowledge is power, and the higher the knowledge, the greater the power. The guidance of world history rests upon such power. The caricature of it is what science wishes to show us today. But a knowledge that wakens hearts, and a power that ventures to interfere with other hearts and with freedom, can be gained only through an insight that is at the same time a grace before which we stand in awe. That our knowledge affects our whole human nature, that we stand before the highest truths and know that the truth we experience within us is divine revelation, which we look upon as something holy, that must stand before our spirit's eye as an ideal. We shall again experience knowledge as power when knowledge is again a communion with the divine, those who become one with the divine in knowledge are called to realize the saying, knowledge is power. That is the end of lecture four and the end of the first part of this book, part one, which was entitled Spiritualism, Somnambulism, and Theosophy.